Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Jimmy Malloy. As a sales representative for Malloy and Van Wert, Jimmy is one of Canada's top residential real estate agents and has sold some of the most significant properties in Toronto. Recognized globally by Christie's International as a world leader in luxury real estate, Jimmy's client list includes local and international celebrities from the worlds of music, film, television, entrepreneurial ventures, and high finance. But you may be surprised to learn that Jimmy's first career was in the restaurant business. As an owner of Toronto's finest French restaurant of the time, Auberge Gavroche at 90 Avenue Road. Welcome, Jimmy, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Andrew, thanks very much for having me. I'm at 1300 Young Street, which is our offices at Chestnut Park. Malloy Van Work is uh, uh, myself and my partner, Lindsay Van Work, and we work for Chestnut Park uh, Real Estate, which is part of the affiliate uh, for Christie's International Real Estate. Excellent. Well, let's start with the important stuff. Not that you had a choice in it, but what a great name. Jimmy Malloy sounds like a man of action or a, a private investigator. Thanks very much. I actually, I had, yeah, the, as you as you mentioned, it really was n- no responsibility of mine, but uh, it certainly has worked out very well for me, both not only in, in my first career, which is the restaurant business, but also as a real estate agent. Well, excellent. I wonder, uh, did you have to go with the more sophisticated James Malloy when you got into the luxury real estate or Jimmy's? Everyone likes that. Well, I think, you know what, that was a very good point. What happened was I was in the restaurant business and the restaurant that I started working at when I was about 16, they already had someone there named James. So they said, well, my mother always called me Jimmy. So I said, I guess you call me Jimmy. So when I worked to the restaurant, I was in the restaurant industry for about 15 to 16 years. Everyone got to know me as Jimmy. And then when I got my real estate license, I, my legal aid is James, so I had my business cards printed as James Malloy. And then I was handing them out to clients. The clients were looking at me and says, well, oh, when you're a busboy, you're a Jimmy. Now that you're a real estate agent, you're a James. So I basically realized this was not actually a smart marketing uh, move. So I had to petition to the Ontario, to the, I guess the, the government authority that regulates us, which is the Real Estate and Business Brokers Act, to use my name, Jimmy, which is a nickname as my legal identification. Well, there you go. There's always a story behind the story. Absolutely. And on that note, let's go all the way back, get the Jimmy Malloy story. Where were you born? And please describe your upbringing. So I was born, I was born in Toronto. Uh, I grew up in Yorkville or the Annex on Bedford Road. And I basically live about 150 yards or 200 yards from where I uh, grew up. And uh, so, as a lot of my friends say, I've actually gone no place in my life. Father died when I was very young. He died when I was six. So I was raised by my mom. And I have two, I had two older sisters. One of them has just recently passed away. And I grew up in, at the time, Yorkville was, when I was a little kid, Yorkville was full of hippies. Where we live was basically a student ghetto. So it was a great neighborhood, always colorful and uh really gave me a great sense of living in downtown Toronto, and I've just never given up that love for it. And what high school did you go to? I went to, initially I went to St. Mike's College at Bathurst and St. Clair, and I was very close to a very good friend of mine who then started in grade, I think it was maybe end of grade 10, beginning of grade 11, started dating. And we would always go out on Friday night looking for, for girls with other friends of ours that were from the neighborhood that went to Jarvis Collegiate. And he became very serious with one girl, and therefore I didn't have my wingman. So then I moved uh, for grade 12 and 13. I went to Jarvis Collegiate and uh, went and started to hang out with my other single friends. And uh, that's basically the saying nothing against St. Mike's, but uh, it was an all-boys school. So Jarvis was better hunting it without a wingman. It's hard to go fly solo. That's good reasons to switch over to Jarvis. Now, Jimmy, you ended up getting your BA in history and economics at the University of Toronto. What was your uh, university experience like? It was funny because, as I said, I, I lived in Yorkville. And so literally, I could walk home for, for, from lunch from U of T. It was like Sigmund Samuel, uh, and where most of the arts and sciences courses, the libraries are. It's literally maybe a 10-minute walk from my house. So, And at the time when I... You know, it was like in the early set or yeah, it was in the late seventies, early eighties. 
most people did not go away to school. Most people, you know, our great objective was to go to U of T. We did not want to go to the Scarborough campus or go to York University. And that was our greatest fear that you'd be stuck trying to get to York University, spending an hour and a half commuting. I was fortunate enough that uh, I made it into Victoria College at U of T. And I basically could walk to school. And uh, it was the culture. All my friends went to U of T. None of us really went away to Western. As like my, I have one son that went to Queens. He never thought of actually ever going to U of T. The idea of kind of once you get uh, out of high school, you move out, go into residence. That didn't really happen. So my experience at the University of Toronto, it's a great school. I still do a lot of work with the university in the way of fundraising. I also do some programs with the you know undergraduates in arts and sciences. They have us in to talk about careers and things like that. It's a great, it's an amazing institution, but the concept of having that lifestyle of a university, I never really did. Well, it's very, it can be very different, as you know, but I do think we take for granted in this city, like you, I'm a Toronto born and bred kid. We do take for granted. We got University of Toronto, York University, TMU, the former Ryerson. We got all these great schools and then other ones close by. So you can't go wrong. You're obviously uh, Toronto to the core. As noted in my intro, before you were well-known in luxury real estate, you were first known as the owner of the city's top French restaurant, Auberge Gavroche, French onion soup, and embossed Rosenthal terrine, braised veal with morel sauce, steak frites, floating islands for dessert, sterling silver cutlery. Jimmy, what was Auberge Gavroche? Well, Auberge Gavroche is, is I guess, it, something that I would say is a summer job that got out of control. Uh, being at St. Mike's, Grade 9 and 10 at the time was paid for by the Ontario government. Then 11, 12, and 13, there was a small uh, tuition that was paid. And so my mother said, well, you know, you've got out of grade 10. Now go get a job because you have to pay for high school. So just literally around the corner on Avenue Road, at 90 Avenue Road, there was a restaurant. And my mother said, you should see if you can get a job there. So I phoned up the owner in the morning and I said, I'd like to come I'd like to apply for a job. And the, thing, the great thing about the restaurant industry in Toronto, where I, it works so well with students, is that a lot of the restaurants open terraces. So they have their full-time staff that deal with you know, the weather. But for two months of the year, they need staff. And they can't hire full-time staff because they, you know, the terrace you know, will close down come September. So there's always room for students to get jobs. So I got a job there, I think, in 1976, and I basically, after the fear and trepidation of being, as I always said, I was the only English staff member there. Everyone was French. After I kind of got over that, after the first week of just total fear, it just became an industry that I fell in love with and that I still is very close to my heart. I have great friends within the community from Michael Bonaccini, uh, Mark Tewitt, Mark McEwen, all the great restaurateurs and chefs I always are dear friends of mine. And it's an industry that it's really not a profession. It almost becomes an addiction. So even when you leave it, when you get into a restaurant, you feel at home. And when you're thinking that you, you always have that thing, it's always like kind of tugging on you. It's always, it's always such a great in, interest of you. It's a great fascination. And it's something that you can share with everyone because everyone eats and that you have an understanding of the restaurant from not just being at the table, but from being behind the scenes, it allows you to kind of have a great insight. So it makes you uh, a great person at cocktail parties. You can always, when people talk about their favorite restaurant, you always have a great anecdote to say, well, this is what happened there, or this is what, you know, something like that. So there's always a lot of color for you. Well, here's a million dollar question, Jimmy. If I got this right, you started out there as a busboy around 1976. How did you transition to owning and operating a restaurant, no less a fine dining restaurant? Well, I think what it was is I worked all the way. As I said, it was a summer job that got out of control. I worked there during the summer, the first year, and then would come in to cover shifts when I was at school. And I continued that way all the way through high school and university. And that's part of, of my living in Toronto and going to U of T. I was able to work three nights a week while I was still at the university. And by being there for so long, and I guess in this, having the same job, seeing the same clients for such a long period of time, you became part of the fabric of the restaurant. Like you were kind of like, they would come to the restaurant on Saturday night. I was always there on Saturday nights because I would always work Saturday night, the busiest night. You got to know all the customers. 
So you became kind of like a fixture to the restaurant. When I graduated from U of T in 1983, there was no real jobs. It was the middle of a recession. The only job offer I was given was a job as a management trainee program at the Toronto Dominion Bank. Nothing saying anything negative about the bank, but I just didn't feel that that would be something that would excite me. So the owner of the restaurant went to me and said, you know what? You've been here so long. Everyone knows you. You love the business. You finished school. Why don't you become a manager? So I became a, a manager and basically started to operate the restaurant. And then Jean-Michel Centineau, who, was this, who started the restaurant, went and opened another restaurant and another one. And he said, you know what? Why don't you kind of buy in? So because I had lived at home during university and everything, I had some money. I guess I, my mother co-signed a loan at the bank and I bought into the restaurant. And about a year later, I brought in some other partners and bought out the original guy. And so that's how he became the owner of that restaurant. Excellent. Now, Jimmy, you know the old saying, I don't know if it's a joke or a trope, how do you make a million bucks in the restaurant business? Start with two million. Exactly. Yeah, the restaurant business is, as I said, you know, it's not a profession, it's an addiction or a religion. It affords you a great lifestyle. And in some respects, I was at the front of the house, so the hard work in, in a lot is done by the chefs. They are, you know, of late because of the introduction of the Food Channel and everything, chefs had become have become superstars. But before they were kind of like the, they were the unknown force of the restaurant. They were not the celebrity. They were the people that made everything work. So the celebrity of the restaurant was the, was the maitre d', the person that greeted you at the door, that, you know, cracked the joke, that kind of kept the evening going. And so in some respects, it's really like being on a stage. So like at six o'clock on a Saturday night and you have 80 reservations and you have 40 seats, your job is to keep everyone happy. You're going to make certain people wait. You're going to rush certain people. You're going to make other people, you know, you're juggling. So in one sense, you almost become an entertainer and you have to keep that flow going, keep as many balls in the air as possible. And it really becomes, it's like you're on stage. And then when the last person leaves, you, all of a sudden, you're you know you're you go, hit the ground again. You're you were flying all night. You hit the ground again, and then you realize, oh well, I have to mop up and make sure I turn off the coffee machine before I leave. So it really must. It has the feeling, and I've talked to actors about it. When you go on the stage, you're totally different than when you are. And if you're, and I think I was, not to flatter myself, I thought I was a very good front man. It was that literally you were putting on a show. And you're there to entertain the client and make their evening special. So it was. it's a great honor to do it because you make someone's anniversary special. You make someone's birthday memorable by not being part of it, but just facilitating it so the person that's there at the table feel like they're the only ones in the room and that they're special. So it's, it's a, it's a, I think it's one of the great training fields that everyone should really spend, uh, like a stash, to use a a actual technical term from the business, it allows you to deal with people and it's a great training for anything you want to do in the future. Learning how to deal with people. It's a skill. It's something you got to learn from experience. It's a great tie-in to what we're going to talk about next, which is that you learned kind of, you were catering to the dining needs of the city's elite and you learned the importance of service. How did this spur you to make the transition from restaurateur to the real estate world and specifically the luxury segment? Well, I, I think that I never set out to focus on the luxury market. So, and maybe that's answering the second question before. What happened was that I had my restaurant, it was going very well, and it was a small scale restaurant. And I was approached by, I guess, maybe kind of the grandfather of the restaurant industry in Toronto, a gentleman named Franco Provedello, who's still a, a, a great friend who's been responsible for some of the most important restaurants from Pronto to Centro to the Ontario Pavilion in Expo, I think it was Expo 86 in Vancouver, and uh, countless other uh, restaurants. He approached me and said, you know what? You've got a great operation. You do a great job. People love dealing with you, but you're in this, basically he's quite blunt, you're in the small town. Why don't you join the big leagues? So, you know, we can do a project together which is going to have great volume, great scale. And with the great volume and great scale, you can actually really do monetize the industry rather than just kind of saying, well, I have a nice lifestyle. I work a lot. 
but I can go out to dinner and write off my meals. I can travel to Europe as uh, research and development, but that's basically the only aspects of it that's really kind of like from a monetary perspective. But when you get scale, you can actually turn it into a really viable business. It's very flattering to be even considered by such an individual. So I decided to sell the business uh, to my partners and they continued on the restaurant and I went to work for Franco. And I think it was, a, it, and it was one of the best things I ever did because the first night that I worked for Franco at Centro, just to see how his system worked, realized that I realized, you know what? I've done it. It's time for me to move on. So from that night, first night on, I decided, what am I going to do in my next life? And so I kind of went from, if I could put, you know, 80 people into 40 seats, maybe I should become a traffic, air traffic controller. I was just like flailing around. And then my sister, Peggy, who was older than me, was also into real estate. She was an executive in an insurance company, but she had a real estate license on the side for fun. She said, why don't you get your real estate license? So while I worked at Centro, I got my real estate license. And then I decided that's what I was going to do. Because I think after all, real estate, the restaurant, people say, well, there's no connection. But it's all connection because both industries are based on one thing, and that's people. And serving people and giving them a great experience, whether it's sitting down to eating or looking for their first home, it's the idea of really just catering to people. And I think the greatest thing about if you want to be successful in, in any business is that you really truly have to love the interaction with people and that they are always the focus. It's not the deal or selling the house. It is how to make that process work for them that's for their best interest. Because if you get invested in your clients, they will invest in you. And I think it has to really come from a point of really being sincerely interested in people. And you learn that from being serving someone dinner because it's such an intimate thing and everyone eats. So therefore, everyone is an expert. So you have to take the lead from them and then it just trans it's a skill that you can transfer to any other business. Well, it's great. It's clearly about the relationship. Hundred percent. Now, Jimmy, you deal in rarefied product for a rarefied level of customer. What is the definition of the luxury segment of residential real estate in the context of what I believe is currently an average Toronto home price of about a million dollars? Yes. And I think, you know, it's when you look at that average price of a million dollars, which is a huge amount of money, when you look at the, the time that I've been in real estate and how much average prices have changed, a million dollars is a tremendous amount of money. But also, you have to look in the context of what has happened to the GTA. The average price that you mentioned is for the GTA. And the GTA now is the fourth largest area, municipal area in North America. Uh, you know, first is Mexico City, then New York, Los Angeles, Toronto, and then Chicago. So that million dollars is average. So you would think if you double that to $2 million, you would think that that would be luxury. What I deal with is I deal with basically central Toronto, uh, from Rosedale, Forest Hill, Lawrence Park, the Bridal Path, uh, Riverdale, that central area, basically the 416. You would have to think that $2 million is pretty common for a house. So when you start to look at real luxury, I think you're kind of getting up to 4 to $5 million. And that would be more, I would say that's much more applicable to the practice that I have with my partner, Lindsay, than for other people that might think luxury is like 2 to $3 million if they're more focused, for instance, further, like in the Kingsway, for instance. Like there are, very, like I've sold houses in the Kingsway at $10 million. But their average their luxury threshold would be lower than, for instance, if it would be in Rosedale or Forest Hill, but both equally luxurious and wonderful neighborhoods. That makes sense. Now, do you generally represent buyers or sellers or both? Both. Both. Dan, I wonder if your clients are more local, national, international, and, and how has that changed over the years? I think that initially when I got my license, uh, my client base were was basically all local, and I d dealt with clients that I developed relationships with doing open houses. Because I had been so long in the restaurant industry, and I guess kind of recognized for what I've achieved, that the majority of the clients, and I had a huge roster of people on a mail list and everything, they looked at me and said, well, Jimmy, 
you're just doing this until you open your next restaurant. So that whole client base that I had, it took maybe about a year to two years to convert actually into clients that would actually look at me as a real estate agent. So the people that didn't know me, they walked into an open house and I could talk to them about the neighborhood, talk to them about the house, talk to them about how this house would fit their lifestyle, their family, their needs, talk about the little, you know, idiosyncrasies of the neighborhood, you know, this is a great school, you know, this shop around the corner is so amazing. Those are the people that kind of welcomed you, welcomed me more as a real estate agent than the people that I had been serving since I was 16 years old. So, it, and it wasn't that they didn't trust me or like me, but their perception of me was so, I guess, frozen in what I had done before. It took me quite some time to get that uh, preconceived notion to thaw, where it then became, oh, he is a real estate agent. And I think that that preconception was, and the change was created by people that never knew who I was. Yeah. And so all when I started sending them, well, I've done this deal, I've done that deal, they said, oh, because I remember one gentleman, and I won't use his name, but Bill, he followed me and he said, you know, and he was a great client of mine. And he said, you know what? I've been watching it. We've always liked you. And you, I, the first time I met him, he had brought his elderly mother to the restaurant and she was from Ireland. And I have an Irish background. And I recognized her accent. We had a great time and they became great clients. And he said, you know what? I've seen all the deals you keep sending, what you've done, but I've never perceived you as that. He gave me a chance. And I sold him a house in Rosedale for $800,000. And then the, the, we sold it about two years ago. I listed it and we got $2 million more than the asking price and sold him another house, a larger house in the Kingsway. So it's been basically, I've been dealing with this guy for 30 years or 29 years, but it took me two years to convince him that he should actually call me. <laughs> yeah, you had to get over that first hurdle and changing the perception. Absolutely. Another thing, of course, that's changed dramatically is technology. I'm pretty sure, Jimmy, when you started, you were an expert in fax machines and you maybe had one of those first cell phones that was the size of a brick. How has the internet changed the way you've done business? Well, if I looked at I started in 1992. And if you put that in perspective, so I'm almost 31, 32 years in the industry. The first iPhone came out in 2007. So for half my career, that there was, there was no iPhone. We had inkjet printers. We would fax things. We would stay up. I remember one night I was here doing a deal, and my client was in Florida. And it was like at 1.30 on a Sunday night, and the fax machine is going through. The paper is jamming. And then the alarm went off because the alarm automatically went on in our office. And I'm on the phone to these people. They think, oh, the, the place is being robbed. And I didn't know what was going on. The alarm's going off. I'm on the phone, running around, scared, thinking that, oh, people have come in to steal all the computers that were at the office. It was just the automatic alarm. Where now I can be in Italy or I can be in New York and I press with the, the rubber end of my phone. I can use DocuSign and everything can be done so easily. So technology has done one thing to the industry, has made it easier to communicate and facilitate paper dealings. It hasn't changed any of the other elements of the industry. You still have to meet, greet, talk, and show people and have them have faith in you and give them solid advice. All of that has never changed because of technology. But other things have changed because of the change of the technology. Like Instagram. Instagram came out in 2010. When you look back now, that how could you live without an iPhone? How could you survive doing marketing without Instagram? These are very recent, current things when you look at, at the scheme of things. Like Instagram is less than a third of my career. And it's like everything else has to evolve, but the same principles always stay the same. What I did, and because of the evolving technology, I took on a partner, uh, Lindsay Van Wert, who worked for me when she got her license about 11 or 12 years ago. She worked for me for five years, and then she went out on her own and created her own business, and she was extremely successful. But like all businesses, everything must evolve and move forward, and keeping on top of all that technology, at my age or doing something for 30 years, you have to have a new insight. So you always have to look at something with a new pair of eyes. And at some point, your eyes are maybe too set in your ways. 
So that's why I thought strategically, it's, and it's been so brilliant for me. I brought in this partner who is brilliant, highly respected, understood who I was, and understood also a good chunk of my clients because she worked with my clients for 30 years and their idiosyncrasies and how service-oriented they are and what they expect, and that she's actually pleased to, re- to meet that challenge. But also she understands everything because she's 20 years younger than me. So, you know, so she grew up with Instagram where me, I'm kind of, kind of I still don't know what a poster reel at a wall is. Now, I think we have great uh, Instagram because of the team that I work with and we're all very creative, but the technology is not something that is easy for me to deal with, but it's opened up so much for our industry and for the marketing of our properties that we've embraced it and really run with it. And I think it's like everything else. You have to evolve with the business. And if you think, well, I'm just doing just fine the way I am, I think that's not the way business has grown. We have to be open to change. 100%. What's interesting, Jimmy, is just this weekend in the Star, the headlines screamed out, real estate agents are freaking out. AI is taking over. They're going to be losing their jobs. But I don't understand. AI is never going to replace what you've emphasized, the relationship part of a transaction. Yes, I think that like everything else, they've been trying to disrupt our industry for the last 10 to 15 years. You know, when everything like you could have 40 photographs, when I came in, we got our listings every day on paper. It had a black and white photograph on the front and on the back of this little uh, like card stock, maybe four by six inch piece of paper on the back, it said private drive lot 50 by 120. All these little things, and we, they'd be dropped off in the middle of the night at our office, and we'd take them up. Now we have 40 pictures. We post on, uh, on our website, on our Instagram. We can do 3D tours of the properties. We can do all of this. But in the end, that is just raw information. Like it's in the age of internet, in the age of Google, everything, any question you want answered, you can answer it on your phone. You can ask your phone, and they can give you an answer. So our job has always been not just to say, oh, yeah, it has a private drive, but what does that private drive mean vis-a-vis, and this is maybe a bad example, vis-a-vis the house next door that has a, has a mutual drive. Facts are basically, or basically are not really that valuable anymore. It's what's valuable is the ability to have the interpretation to connect the dots. It's to see the pattern in the marketplace, to see what's happening. No one has a crystal ball. But you have to be able to link together what's happening and elements of it, interpret it, and then give that to your client and to create that relationship with your client. AI is nothing more, and my son's working on his PhD in artificial intelligence. He always tells me artificial intelligence on itself is no more smarter than the breadboard. What it does, it just sorts through little facts and connects them. But that does not mean that it might be, it might save you time writing a description of a house, but it's never going to be able to have you explain what's it like to be in that house. When you go see that house in the morning and you phone your client and say, you know what, I found the absolute perfect thing for your family. You get to the second floor, you look out the window and you see that tree and you can see Billy or uh, Susan, you know, swinging a rope under that limb, that is something that can't be replaced by artificial intelligence. And that is why everything is so relationship-driven in our industry, is because it's personal experiences. And those personal experiences that you share with a client, you have to learn from the client what they're looking for. That's what's the difference between residential and commercial, because commercial real estate you know, is like, how much is it per square foot? What are my taxes? It's triple net. And, you know, it's a a AAA building, so it has great air conditioning, great amenities, five elevators. And can my lawyers make money? And can I afford to pay the rent? But a home is, and that's what it is. We're not selling houses. We're selling homes, which inevitably become lifestyles for those people. Like they, a home is kind of the filing cabinet of one's life. Because everything that's bad, or, you know, you have a, a problem, the kid has a, a bad exam, you sit at home around the kitchen table, how are you going to improve your marks next year? And you have a great moment, the kid improves his marks. You have holidays, you have birthdays, they're always celebrated at home. 
And that's what we have to do is we're not selling bricks and mortar. We're selling something that's so intangible, but is so important. And it's and where do you feel the, the most safe is when you're at home. Well, that's a great thing. I love the way you said that. Home is the filing cabinet of your life. And it, you do have to create that picture for the buyer. Now, you've seen what buyers are looking for in the luxury real estate segment. Is the old maxim true? Is that buyer still looking for three things? Location, location, location? I, without question. I think location is kind of almost is, is the fundamental thing. But the one thing that I think has changed, like especially in the super luxury, is that you'll see these people, and it's interesting that people will, they're without question, they're only dealing with locations that make sense for them. They want to be on the best street, either they're in Forest Hill or Rosedale or Yorkville or the Bridal Path. They want to be what they perceive as the best location. But what they are, what's, we've seen as a trend lately is a lot of them don't want to buy someone else's house. They want to buy their house. And that's what you've seen the birth of these, what I've called them now, the, like the super luxury homes. And these are homes for people that had wonderful homes, but at some point in their lives, they said, you know what? I'd like to build a house that reflects me. And that's, you have the birth of these, you know, we have great architects from uh, Joe Brennan, uh, who was the master builder, built some of the most important homes in Toronto. You have C-Mac Harari that's built some of the great homes of Toronto. And you see this, people are investing in their home, that their home is a reflection not only of them, but of what they want. And so there's this whole kind of collection now, and none of these homes have really sold because they've all been built in the last 10 years. And these are homes that are reflections of the seller. They're not there to buy, I mean, of the buyer. They're not there to buy somebody else's house and then paint it. They want to build a complete new house. So it's, it's, quite, it's quite interesting. Well, of course, the other big real estate maxim is you can never go wrong by land. They ain't making more of it. And perhaps this ties into what you're talking about, Jimmy, where they'll purchase the land irrespective of the house because they're going to raise and rebuild it. So you are seeing a lot of that. Absolutely. And I think what it is, is that there is such a demand to be in Toronto. And, you know, like in everyone, I think lately because of the pandemic and, you know, the problems we've had with like the mayor and the recent election, that people feel, I think in general, people say, oh, well, Toronto's not as good as it used to be and everything like that. And then you, you scratch the surface a bit and you say, well, what about your, how do you feel like living where you are? Well, I wouldn't live anywhere else. I live in the best neighborhood in Toronto and it's amazing. My lifestyle, the coffee shop down the street, they know what I want when I go to grab the streetcar. And this is, it's so in one sense, there seems to be kind of a, a, almost like kind of a little bit of a malaise on the macro level. But on a micro level, there's not. And I'm talking about people that live in Leslieville that wouldn't move anyplace else because they have a beautiful house on a great street. Their kids go to a nice school. They know every shop. They know every restaurateur. And they love their lifestyle. And they're very proud of being there. Now they'll be the first people to tell you that the TTC doesn't work properly. You know, the bike lanes are in their way. They're not thought out. The city's not emptying their garbage. Toronto's in a terrible shape. Do you like where you live? It's the best place to, get, to live in the world. And that, I think, goes across from Parkdale to Yorkville to Rosedale to Forest Hill. Everyone loves their community. and But when you look at it on a more macro scale, there seems to be, Toronto's been kind of beaten up by the pandemic, which I think is typical of the whole world. But still in the end, when you look at it focused on the community level, there's no place people would rather be than where they are. Still the best city in the world, if you ask me. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Jimmy Malloy, please check out the more than 150 additional episodes available anytime. We got Michael Landsberg, Paul Reiser, Rick Vi, Alan Frew, and our ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365, wherever you get your podcasts. How do you market luxury real estate? You can't hold open houses with the hoi polloi trampling through, Jimmy. Well, I think that, you know, and, and it's interesting, it's an interesting fact. We've done 35% of our business this year uh, at Malloy Van Wert without actually going to the public market. 
And last year, it was 20%. And I think that's a reflection in some respects that the market, the list, the amount of supply in the market is slower. There is some question about, because of the rapid increase in interest rates, is this the best time to sell my house? Is there going to be a buyer for my house? But I still would sell my house if the numbers made sense. And and the one thing that is so wonderful about like the MLS system, and Toronto has the largest MLS system in the world, it's the most advanced. And that's, I think, what has been able to move the Toronto market along so well is because it is an organized market where everyone has access in, as a way of agents to information. People know what's happening. They see trends because information allows you to develop a better understanding of trends. That is what I mentioned earlier about connecting the dots. And I think that, which is also important, but also being in the market for 30 years and having access because of 30 years and building up like a huge network of buyers and sellers. When I have sellers that, you know, in many cases, they are selling for reasons that are not, you know, at that level. They're not because, oh, I need another bedroom. Their houses are big enough, but they might be, and they would like to sell to change their lifestyle, maybe move into a large condo. Kids have gone off to university, but they don't want it so publicly out there because it's kind of like, I will do it if it makes sense to me. I don't want to actually have it out there that we just connect. And our business, as I look at it, we have two clientele. We have the agent community is one of our clienteles because they have buyers that might have a property for, uh, might have a buyer for something that I have in my pocket. And they might have something that I might have for one of my buyers as well as just the, you know, the seller itself. So it's just really a combination of phoning people and working your things and being out there and being in the marketplace, which is so important. Like you, it, to me, I can go to a charity event and I can convert that into selling a house for $12 million just because I ran into someone, you know, as we're lining up for some kind of like not the best glass of wine, but we're there for charity reasons, so we shouldn't complain, and convert that into a sale where they said, you know, you mentioned something to me that you might, I have something that's not on the market that might work. And they said, well, let's see if we can do it. And that's happened, like, as I said, 35% of the time this year. Well, clearly the bulk of your business by definition would have to be referrals and repeats. And as you say, Jimmy, you got to be out there. It's your job to be at the hockey game and the, and the cocktail party. I remember years ago, I had the I was had the pleasure of doing some work with Mr. Weston, the, the late Mr. Weston, the, the from Weston Loblaws, and we were talking business. As I was driving around, he was looking at just nothing to buy. It was just kind of just one of those things. And the one thing he told me, he says, and he had a great line. He says, "Retail is in my DNA. Every morning when I get up, I think about how can I sell that product better." How can I do this? Is that if you want to be successful at what you do, it has to become you. And I'm in the service industry, so I have people phone me up and ask me, because I do travel a lot and because of my restaurant background, where should I go to for a restaurant in New York? Where should I go to a restaurant in Paris? What are my recommendations? That's part of being a, a good service provider. We give people insight on everything, and we're there to help. And a lot of the times you can have conversations with people for five years and never talk about real estate. But when they, all of a sudden they phone you, you know what? I think I'm going to sell because I'm going to look at a condo. They call you. And so that's what it is, is that you have to become your job and realize it's not about the deal. It's about the long-term relationship. It's like they always said that, you know, at Harvard, at they told you how to build a business for the next quarter reports. And in Japan, they build businesses that last 100 years. So you have to realize it is a business of relationships, but those relationships are not short-term. They're ongoing. And that's the way you want it. Well, you did bring up Galen Weston, the senior. And as a side note, <laughs> I started my career, Jimmy, out of school working at Loblaws. So I was trained in the uh, tents of Mr. Weston, or more specifically, Dave Nickel. Retail is in the detail. And so I uh, uh, understand where you're coming from with these lessons of making sure consumers first, and it's the relationship. Now, bringing up Mr. Weston's name, I realize that your discretion and respect of confidentiality are what your real estate clients value. 
so I will not press you. But your website does say includes international celebrities from the worlds of music, film, television, and finance. Any bold-faced names or client stories that you feel comfortable to share? I listed and sold a penthouse of the Four Seasons for $36 million. That was a list price. The price, what it sold for, is not disclosed. And that was kind of a major character. Not really. And she was major in one sense because she had, there was a sale because of a nasty divorce. And she had a story on the cover of the New York Times Saturday magazine about how her husband stole $400 million from her. And it was such a great story. It got so much, how would I say, uh, traffic that when we listed the penthouse, we were able to talk about that and reached out. So we had, we had used pay, it was picked up by Bloomberg all around the world. So that was a celebrity really just because of the infamy of the story of the New York Times. But I, I remember one crazy day, it was, it was a tragic day, we did, I did a lot of work with the Four Seasons Hotel. And on 9-11, that morning, the Four Seasons phoned me up after the second plane had hit the tower. And they said, we have a client that is an American, and he is very concerned, very frightened, and was afraid that you know war was going to break out. He was afraid he didn't want to be drafted and all of this. And they said, he wants to go look at properties. He might want to stay in Canada, but he doesn't want to be in a city. So he wants to go. And, and I said, okay, well, and he wants to go today. I said, where does he want to go? Well, he, he says he wants to go close to Alaska. And I said, well, driving to Alaska today is going to be kind of difficult and we can't get a plane. And they said, I know. But they said, Jimmy, we're the Four Seasons. We've asked you to solve the problem. So if, if you don't have a solution, there isn't a problem. So I figured, okay, what am I going to do? So I, as we are the largest broker, uh, we're tremendously successful, obviously in Toronto, Chestnut Park, but we also, the most dominant firm in Muskoka, I phoned a great colleague of mine, Joe Quinn, in Muskoka, and this was in September, so the season was kind of coming to an end. And I said, you know what, I'm coming up there this afternoon, I need to show some cottages, and I'll phone you back. So when I got to the Four Seasons, I met Nick Carter from the Backstreet Boys. And we spent 9-11, and my wife was actually working, was in New York, and she was covering, she was the fashion editor at the start of the time, but she was the only journalist from the Toronto Star that was in New York, so they sent her down to uh, Ground Zero, as far as she could go, and she was filing stories, and I was driving around Muskoka in a limousine with Nick Carter and his entourage, showing these properties, and we got back to the Four Seasons about 11 o'clock that night. And we had a great time with Nick. And he was very nice, very charming, very nervous. And then we dropped him off at the hotel. His manager phoned the next day and said, thank me very much. They had lost one of the members in one of the planes. One of, not the band members, but one of the people that were on their, in, in their road company. Thanked me very much and said, they, he will not be buying a property in Canada. But we really appreciate you looking after him. So that's how I spent 9-11 with Nick Carter and the Backstreet Boys. You've got to be a problem solver. <laughs> Try your best. Now, that property that you mentioned, again, the list price, not necessarily the selling price, but that $36 million penthouse in the Four Seasons, was that the most expensive GTA property you've been involved in? Yes, that's the most expensive property. I think it's maybe, and you can't tell because we did that, it wasn't on the MLS system. I think the most expensive property on the MLS system is around 23 to $24 million, the most expensive sale ever. There is, as you, at that price point, there are deals that are done at that level, but it, that's really rarefied air. And I think that when you're looking at it and you look at some of these houses that I mentioned earlier about these super houses that are being built, people are spending like 30, 40, 50 million dollars on construction alone. So the question is, is, where will those houses trade at? But they're not going to be trading at it for, for years. Well, on that note, perhaps you can share some home or condo features you have seen in Toronto that would blow our minds. I'm thinking about maybe a shark tank or an indoor car turntable or a home theater setup. Well, I, I, you know what? It's The one thing about Toronto is that Toronto in itself is still a very conservative Canadian button-down town. It is not like you go to Miami, you have the Porsche building, which has an elevator to bring your Porsche upstairs, and then there they have the Fendi condo building. And all. And I know that they're coming out, I think, with an Aston Martin building. 
Cipriani, which is a Hyatt Italian restaurant in New York, is building a condo. So Toronto is a little bit more kind of restrained and reserved. But I there is like where you have not his and her wine cellars, but you have white cellars for white wine, cellars for red wine. You do have people that have motorcycles and cars displayed in their condominiums or in their houses. And they look at them, you know, typically they're almost like a work of art. It's not looking like they're parking the car there. It's kind of there as this is a collector's item. But I think it, it, it's, I think you would see Canadians do crazier things in Miami in their residence there than they would do in Toronto. Also, which is nice, that you will see that a lot of people that are building, when they're building, they are now having a very environmental approach. Like they really are trying to do something about making their houses greener. So that in itself kind of is, I think is, it shows kind of the depth of the, the thoughtfulness that buyers are associating or, or, or people that are building their homes. They're taking into account, this makes a little bit more sense. Why not put a little bit more effort that actually might benefit everyone? So I think that's a little something that we should be proud of. The general public has been told spring is the time to buy or sell a house. How much seasonality is there in the luxury segment of residential real estate? I think I think the spring market, without question, is is always the busiest. People enter the new year with always a sense of hope, and because I think it's been a reflection since basically since 1996, when the market had it crashed in '89, went down to '96, they finally got interest rates down to a point that it kind of spurred on people reengaging in the housing market because the market of '89 was very much a speculative market where people say, well, I can buy this and flip it to make money so that everyone was having two houses. From 96 onwards, with the lower interest rates, people were saying, well, it's a time to get re-engaged in the market. And we've had from that time, from basically 96 up until now, where we have actually, we had the highest interest rates in 22 years that we're dealing with now. It's been a market where people are actually buying houses to live in. And the hallmark of the success of the market is that there is this huge demand and not enough supply. And so at the beginning of the year, it seems that people say, okay, this is my year to buy. And what's happened is, and the spring market does not start in May when the flowers start to bud. The spring market starts, depending on weather, end of January, middle of February. Like during the ice storm, the market was still, when we had the ice storm, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. The market was maybe, I would say, three to four weeks delayed because of that. But if we have a a relatively easy winter, by the end of January, the market starts to take off. And what happens is, is the lack of supply and the demand is so high, you get into the situations where you start hearing in March, April, you get multiple offers and the prices start edging up, edging up, edging up. And then you get all the talk. Is it too high? Is there a bubble? And this goes on every year. And then it kind of peters out a bit. Then people try to get on, get, people are saying, oh, this is a perfect time to sell. When it was eight weeks ago, it was a perfect time to sell. Then they list their property, not at a fair market value. They list it at a price that anticipates an increase in the market two months out. But because there's so much information and buyers are so well informed, they're saying, oh, that guy's just trying to capitalize on a market that's not there. He's future pricing. Market starts to slow down, you get to the end of the school year, summer, you have the usual thing, and then you get a market again in September, but it's never as robust as that. Well, I learned it all the way back in grade 12 at AY Jackson in my economics class. It always comes back to supply and demand. Absolutely. Jimmy, have you ever experienced cryptocurrencies being actually accepted for a real estate purchase? We did one deal where a deposit was, and it was for a closing, I think it was, is that the buyer was a first-time buyer, young guy, very smart. He actually was a supplier in our industry. He was doing three-dimensional tours of his house, of houses for us, and I had, he wasn't our client. And I think he actually was his own agent. I think he represented himself. He could not, we wanted a very quick closing, and he had a, I think it was a two-week or 21-day period that the bank had to have all the cryptocurrency in place and they needed a period of 21 days before they would actually release it as for the buyer. Because the bank says, okay, well, there is cryptocurrency. You've transferred it to, into, into like 
Canadian dollars. But is that real? So that was the only time that I've ever actually dealt with cryptocurrency. And it was a problem. It was it caused a delay factor because the bank was saying, okay, you've sold us cryptocurrency and you've given us the money, but is that money going to be taken back because we don't have a handle on it? So there was just kind of uncertainty. It's kind of like now with certified checks. Lawyers will not accept a certified check on closing. They want money wired because they feel that people are – the technology now to forge a certified check is so good that they are saying, no, we want to have our money in the trust account wired. In this, I think it's a large value transfer system. That's a, a lawyer's thing. But they will not accept certified checks. And so all these things for the smooth operation – there's so many ways of like crypto is not 100% there in the minds of everyone. So everyone is certain, certainly careful, you know, with the, you know, the collapse of that exchange in the States, all those things are all natural setbacks. Well, things keep evolving, but that's kind of very interesting to hear you say certified checks. That's what we all grew up with. Those aren't accepted. So things will continue to evolve. I was kind of fascinated, if that's the word, to find out there's actually a segment of real estate uh, dedicated to properties with a stigma. These are properties which may be something criminal or death took place. Is that an actual issue uh, and maybe one that you've come across when you're trying to market properties? Yes, we have rules. We have There are specific rules. Now, we are much more lenient. In the United States, where they're much more litigious, they have like reams and reams of disclosures. I would say that here, if someone committed suicide, if I was listing a property and I knew someone committed suicide in the house, or if there was a crime in the house, like a, like a murder, like not burglary or anything, I would disclose that without question to the client. Now, I think your, your disclosure obligations might be five years, but I still think it's something that you would point out to people. And I know that there are certain people that are just kind of not would just be uncomfortable with it. Uh, it's a, it's a, there was a, it's a terrible thing. There was a property, uh, and it sold for a, a very very reasonable number. And it was and it was not the house where the Shermans were murdered, but they had bought a property on Old Forest Hill Road, and they had bought two properties together to build, as I was mentioning earlier, a, like a super house. Like they were going to build their dream of what they wanted as a house. And obviously, the tragic uh, circumstance for the Shermans and their families, that property, I think that they sold, and they sold below what they did to assemble it in a better market. They just couldn't take themselves to buy it. Like, and no one would kind of like say, well, I'm not buying that. But if you talk to people on the side of the thing, yeah, I wouldn't feel comfortable buying it. You know, so it was just... It was just, an, so what happened was someone came in, bought the property, divided it up and kind of, you know, built two different houses. So totally different kind of situation. And, and, and the stigma was nothing to do. Nothing happened at that property. It was just the association kind of gave some people pause. Again, comes back to perceptions. There's yeah. still the human element. Do you still keep your eye on the restaurant industry, Jimmy? And where should we be going today for our French fine dining needs in the absence of Auberge Gavroche? Well, you know, it was funny because I have a great friend of mine uh, who's also retired from the industry. He, uh, Joseph Bersani, he used to be Bersani and Carlevella and several other restaurants. And we had last Monday, we have every couple of years, we have a little celebration in my backyard where we invite, you know, 30 or 40 of the cooks of the restaurant. And we have, we have rosé. They all bring a little snack, and we all hang around together, complain about the cost of napkins, complain about the cost of the city taxes, the rules. I remember during the lockdown, it was like almost like people were like ready to you know start getting their pitchforks to attack City Hall or Queens Park. And so I'm always connected to the restaurant industry. But I think you know Toronto is so blessed by such a, a diverse restaurant community. And I always say that, you know, if you look, and I remember when I had just got into the business, Bar Italia, which I don't know if you remember, Bar Italia and College Street opened up. And it was before it was always kind of like a restaurant street, but very kind of local and like hyper ethnic, not kind of like cool ethnic. It was like little Portuguese places where, you know, you know where first generation immigrants would work and come. 
And then when Bar Italia opened there, because they opened there because the rents were reasonable, rather like if you rented in Bloor Street, you can't afford it. They opened. It became cool and everything. And all those people would go down there to have the cool sandwich and shoot a game of pool at Bar Italia. And they would park their cars on Markham, Euclid, and Palmerston and look at the housing stock, beautiful houses. And then they started to buy the houses. So you can see, and the same thing happened in Leslieville, where restaurateurs and like guys like baristas opening their own little businesses can't open and compete, for instance, against, you know, Renfrew or Louis Vuitton paying rents. So they create their own little high streets. And those little high streets recreate the neighborhood because those are like when you sell a condo, they say, oh, it has guest suites in a swimming pool. Well, when you have a great neighborhood where the amenities of the neighborhood, oh, is this great restaurant, this great coffee shop, this great, you know, tailor or dry cleaner, that is creating kind of like the amenities that you would get in a condominium building. So if you want to see, and the old people always ask, well, what's an upcoming neighborhood? Like I have young kids, they can't afford to live here. Where should they go? I said, go to a neighborhood. Where are they? Where are they? Like Leslieville has already been gone and like Parkdale is the same. Go see what's happening. I remember there was a new restaurant, I think it was Rushton, that opened at Rushton in St. Clair. And you see what's going to happen. And I said, just wait. And you see the difference what's happened in that neighborhood. Because one restaurant leads to another restaurant. It's all great competition because it always brings buyers. And all of a sudden, the clientele and the old people move out, and, and then young people move in, and they're professionals. They want the proximity, but they want lifestyle. So I think in a lot of parts, restaurants and real estate go hand in hand because a great restaurant and a great place to hang out is a great amenity for your neighborhood. It's a great lifestyle. Yeah, Jimmy, you've been great with your time. As we wrap up, I want to ask, where can we best follow you? And where can we best follow your firm, Malloy and Van Wert? So uh, we're on Instagram, Malloy Van Wert, courtesy of a great team that uh, makes, you know, they make the trains run on time. And as and before we even started, you know, we had Saloma in here making sure I wouldn't hang myself up or electrocute myself getting the mic set up. Uh, we have a, gr- uh, a great team of uh, Mary uh, and Julie and then my partner, Lindsay. And uh, it's funny, we do every now, like every morning, we s- spend 10 minutes thinking about how we're going to reach out to people and, and, and send a message. And that goes from either letters, all different forms of contact. What we want to be is we want to be sticky in the marketplace. We want to make sure that people are aware of us. So I think maybe the fastest way to reach us or to get a perception of us is either beloyvanwert.com with our website or Instagram post. And fortunately, we have a great relationship with all the major papers. So we're always being asked for information and insight into different stories uh, of what's happening in Toronto. Because Toronto is such a dynamic city. I think we had a tough time during the pandemic. And, you know, the changing of the mayors was, you know, an unnecessary hiccup, I believe. But I think we should not forget, we should take the love that we have for our community where we live and just take that micro view and make it a little bit more macro and a little bit more open up and say, you know what, we're going to get the garbage cans cleaned up. We're going to get going. And this is the best place to live. And, you know, it's like there's such opportunity for people here. And I think that's what we have to focus on. Like we were, I was just away with my wife and some friends and we were in Italy and we were looking at these Tuscan fields and it was so beautiful. And we both, all of us looked at each other and said, imagine how tough it must have been for these people to leave here to come to Toronto, where a lot of them had no money, they didn't speak English, but they knew if they came here, it would be better for them and better for their children. And I think that is still present. And I think that opportunity, I know how lucky I am. My parents came after the war. My father died when I was a kid. My mother was able to support me. We had a rooming house. And now I've had the pleasure of, you know, I've talked to Mr. Weston. I know and I've done business with some of the most important and philanthropic people in the city of Toronto. And that's kind of what Toronto is and what Canada is. So I think that we just have to be positive and maybe smile a little bit more while we can't find a parking space when we're downtown in all the gridlock. 
thanks for that pick me up speech, Jimmy, because I am going downtown tonight and I'm <laughs> anticipating. Where am I going to park my car? All I can say is good luck. It's horror. <laughs> oh, a great message to close off on, which is it's a great time for renewal here in the city of Toronto. It was fantastic to meet you and capture some of your stories. And I want to thank you for your time and I want to wish you continued success. And thank you very much. Just to be associated with something like Toronto Legends is way beyond my pay grade and is so super flattering. I really appreciate it. And thanks for reaching out. And uh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. It has been my pleasure. And to the listeners, on behalf of Jimmy Malloy, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. Hi, I'm Mercedes Nickel, four-time Winter Olympian and host of Dropping In, a podcast with Mercedes. This is a podcast where I interview a bunch of different people. I get the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well as I share my stories along the way. Now you can drop in at droppingin.com or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. I'll see you soon. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.